Welcome and thanks for listening. My name is Christian Buckley, and you're listening to the Collab Talk podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Rob May, founder and CEO of BrandGuard, on the topic of the potential and challenges of the future of generative AI. Let's get started. And welcome to another episode of the Collab Talk podcast, where we discuss the convergence of technology, business productivity, and collaboration culture. And my guest today is Rob May, the founder and CEO of BrandGuard. Welcome, Rob. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, this is a, a great topic. As I was just saying before we started recording, I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of conversation around this, and I think a lot of misconceptions out there about. Uh, the content creation process, but I'd love to talk about the potential and some of the challenges of, you know, the future where generative AI is going, and then specifically the role of AI around content creation. But I always like to start with the guest, kind of introducing themselves. What else? What else is your background, uh, and maybe an overview of what BrandGuard does? Sure. So I'm actually a hardware engineer by training. I used to do computer chip design. And um, then in 2008, I started my first startup, which was a tech company that did backup for cloud computing applications. It's called Backupify and had a really nice exit. Oh. Yeah, have you I used just it? have to say that uh, uh, you guys were one of my, uh, so I was a vendor. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, we did that. We got, had a really nice exit. Um, um, we sold way too early. The product is, is way bigger and, and awesomer now. Uh, and then I uh, did another company called Tala after that. It was a chatbot, customer support chatbot company. It was my first foray into the AI space. Mm -hmm. uh, I left, that company kind of went a little bit sideways. And um, we uh, we sold to a company called Siva. Siva got acquired by Bloomfire. Um, and then we um, I went to the VC side for a while. I spent a couple years at a... Uh, firm called PJC in Boston, leading their sort of AI and robotics practice. Um, and then I left to do a, another startup, and that startup, through a series of things that happened, ended up becoming BrandGuard. So, okay, so what BrandGuard does is when you use a lot of generative AI tools to go out and create content at scale, you run into this problem that a human can't check it all. So if you're going to create 5,000 custom emails, if you're going to create you know, 10,000 custom landing pages. Like, how do you know it's all on brand? How do you know it's all high quality? We built a machine learning, a bunch of machine learning models that sort of look through that. They're trained to understand what your brand stands for. I show you some really cool examples of that and, and how we do it. Um, but it gets at the look and feel of the brand. It ingests the brand guidelines. It understands, you know, logo placement, color, font, whether all those things are correct. And, and then it gives everything a score so that you can filter all the content that you create and basically say, you know, what do you want a human to review? What do you want auto approved? What do you want to reject and send back to the machines to, to generate again? And so I, we call it a brand governance platform because it ensures consistency across everywhere that you create content, everywhere that you post content. Um, so it's a new category of software, but it's going really well. We've seen really strong um, early market traction compared to things I've done in the past. So that's, that's very exciting. Well, you know what's interesting to me the the way that so as you were describing that too, uh, I mean, I thought of like I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, centralized 
uh, email signature management. So, uh, you know, I've worked with a company out of the UK called Exclaimer. They're kind of one of the, one of the you know the top uh, brands within that space. But that idea of you want to leave it up to all of your employees of of what a signature looks like, then you're going to get what we have in most organizations is you know wide variety of branding and people not adhering to the style guides and uh, you're losing out of that marketing opportunity. Something like this, I mean, I don't know if this is the, the application, what this actually looks like, um, but to be able to enforce branding standards around and, and messaging and positioning in the content that goes out, um, I mean, I can see huge applications for this. I work in the Microsoft ecosystem. Uh, you, you've worked in that space as well. Uh, you, you know, with everything that they're doing around Copilot and all of that is is still very uh, uh, you know user led of what's created, what's accepted, what's used for those tools. They have their syntax platform, which is you know part of that is the ability to based on patterns to create templates for the content creation. So if you work in like in the insurance industry and you're you're pushing out every day, you're you're creating dozens or hundreds of forms that are 80, 90% the same, and then modify for each of the individuals that, that go out there. I mean, you you can kind of, that. there's no AI to that, except in the building the documentation, it's just following templates. Like, is does this, so this actually allow, like, is it something that, like, if I've got 100 employees, that it would actually jump in to, if I'm writing emails and, give me guidance on making sure that I'm representing the company the same way. Yeah, one of the things that people sort of considered as like Grammarly for brands and branding, um, because yeah, to your point, like t templates can help standardize things, but then they take away some of the creativity. And so when you look at a scenario, like templates don't really allow you to say, you know, create a thousand personalized advertisements or whatever, right? Because templates don't have that kind of variability. And so if you want to do that and you want to do it with generative AI, you're just not going to be able to check all that and make sure that it's on brand. And not just because if you've used ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion or any of these tools, you know that sometimes they use the wrong words or they hallucinate or you get humans with six fingers and three eyes. It's not just the quality piece, but it's like, do you use the nuanced words that we want you to use as a brand, right? Like words have slightly different meanings and some brands will say, you know, we want you to use, you know, um, you know, bright, but not, you know, light or whatever, you know, we, they, they, it's, it's crazy what we've seen in some of these style guides. We've seen rules like, um, we saw a style guide that had a rule, uh, no child can be shown using technology without an adult present. Well, that's a hard thing to teach a model to pick up on, but if it's important to the brand of how they want to reflect themselves, like those are the kinds of rules, um, that, that we can put into brand guard. And then what happens is if you generate a bunch of images out of whatever platform you use, Dolly 2, Stable Diffusion, Shutterstock, you know, who, whoever has these things, you just, we just show you the stuff that meets the brand criteria. What's interesting. Uh, so is this, I mean, right now, are, are you looking at certain sectors? Or is there a place that, uh, is this kind of broad across multiple industries where, people are interested in this kind of thing, or do you see certain early adopting sectors or industries? It's a great question. We've actually been surprised at the adoption because we expected it would be something that like the top 10,000 brands in the world would care about. But you know, we have a we have a 40 person company startup that uses it. And 
they're a good example. They have, um, they're not even using generative AI. They're just like, we use consultants and contractors to write our, you know, social media posts. And a lot of times we're giving them feedback that it's not on brand. They didn't use the right words. And so if we could just tell them, run it through this filter and make sure it scores appropriately before you even show it to us, just saves everybody a lot of time and money. So, um, so yeah, so that's, um, it's probably easier to say who we're not talking to. We're not talking to companies in regulated industries yet. We will, but they have a lot more rules they have to follow around their marketing, you know, healthcare, pharma, uh, yeah. consumer finance sometimes. And so it'll take longer to build those extra additional layers of models. Um, but we'll get there. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And you say that because that was where I was going. You know, so I'm uh, advisor to a healthcare tech company. Um, uh, you know, one of my uh, uh, one of my adult children is in the healthcare space in the uh, um, uh, in the data science side of things, uh, and, and so I could completely see the application of that. Um, uh, and that's why you see some of those organizations with uh, Microsoft Syntex are some of the biggest proponents of that technology because it's repetitive. There are you know specific wording that they want to use and want to enforce as part of that. So they're very interested in that that technology, but I can see, again, there's not on the creativity side, there's not as much of a requirement there. But yeah, that it's an it's an interesting space. It's uh so so how long has the company been around? So the technology is about a year and a half in development. Um, the company is about half that age because we we spent some time figuring out that we could do this before we made it into a company and raised some financing. Um, but it's going really well. You know, we have we have customers. Um, we are pretty deep with a lot of uh, advertising, creative agencies, mm -hmm. and um, and some pretty big brands. So uh, yeah, you'll see a, you'll see a lot more announcements coming out both on customer wins and and product roadmap later this year. Well, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing from from the space? I mean, is there? I mean, is it still just that you know warm bodies in there? Just pe companies, organizations say, "Hey, look, why do we need to do this? Pay fees for this? We've got people that can do this. That's their jobs." Well, it depends on who you talk to. The agencies are pretty worried that generative AI might eat into their business, as brands say, "Well, I can use Midjourney for this. Why do I need you to create stuff? My people can play around." You know, I I don't know that agencies are going away. I think they still provide a a lot of valuable services, um, but you can see where some parts of the business might decline as a result. Uh, brands are super interesting because the brands are all trying to figure out how to do this to reach their dream of hyper-personalization. You know, if, if I have 5,000 people on an email list, how do I send everyone a slightly different email, but that's all for the same campaign and all on brand, but like slightly different words, you know, that I might use, you know, maybe a little, in, little less formal for younger people, a little more formal for older people, you know, those, those kinds of things. Um, but everybody's worried about losing control. You know, you turn something over to the machines, you don't know what you're going to get. And you really want to cede control of your brand to, you know, stable diffusion. Well, so I, it, it's, it's funny. I like the, the meme of the, um, like the chat GPT, um, the adoption curve on that where people like it, you know, the fear and excitement, and then they start going and trying to just using the most simple commands and realize that the garbage that it outputs, and then they start to realize, well, there's a certain way that I need to train it for it to learn, there's a certain way to 
ask it questions to get the results. And then there's, again, growth and acceptance of a tool that it can go and do this thing. Um, do you still, do you think that we're still at that, the fear stage, like AI is just going to take away jobs or are people pretty rapidly figuring out, hey, it's a tool and actually I can just do more with it? Yeah, we see we see both. Um, I would say the majority of people still are worried that it's going to take jobs and there's probably a little bit of hesitancy. But the other big problem is just cultural workflow adoption, right? If you have seven steps in a workflow and AI now helps you with two of them, well, sometimes you just create like a hurry up and wait scenario for the other stages of the workflow. And that's not that helpful, right? Your overall workflow might not get that much faster. You just created a bottleneck in a different place. So I think people are confused about where and how to roll it out and how to adapt their workforce practices and workflows to, to sort of do it. Um, but there's a fair number of people, I don't know, maybe 20% of the workforce that from our point of view, that's very forward thinking, they're playing around with these tools, they're running experiments, they're incorporating, incorporating them into simple, you know, simple tasks, just to try to learn and understand what their limitations are. And I think that's the way you should be thinking about this. I think you have to think about, um, you know, think about this, when you create more content faster and easier, it just creates another bottleneck somewhere else. Like what do you have to master as a marketer if you wanna use these tools for content creation? You have to master, you know, the prompting that you give to these things. You have to master how you think about experimentations and interpret the results of whether your personalization techniques worked. Um, you have to think about how you integrate these tools together in workflow, right? Because that's a new new thing that hasn't been done before. So you have to think about how you give feedback to the models and training data and label that data. And so there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that are still very, very valuable for humans, but you should be able to accomplish a lot more with the same size team if you adopt this at scale. Well, that that's where, I, the way that I describe it, and I'd love to hear how you think about this too, but I, I think of that, it's not replacing the human creativity. It It is, it's a, that's why one reason I think that Microsoft's branding of Copilot is a brilliant branding. It's not replacing the pilot. It's a co-pilot that's there that's assisting you. Um, so uh, I think so, there could be some other smart brands out there and, and messaging around that, but it's not replacing creativity. It's definitely, uh, it, it, I mean, the way that I use it, somebody who writes a lot of content, it's a way to get me unblocked. It's an idea generator. Like, uh, I, I, I still, I, I, when I, when you heard early on of, of people going out and said, oh, I wrote this, there's some author that wrote a book using, you know, uh, open AI. And I'm just thinking, well, what kind of crap material is, I've seen this, like, You've got to spend so much time teaching it, guiding it along that process. You might have just been able to write the book yourself at that point. Right. So what is that balance between, you know, what what the generative AI produces and the the balance of that human creativity? Is you know, that... I've yeah, I've seen some of the some of the agencies in particular that we've spoken to. I can tell you how they're thinking about it right now, which is this is not going to disrupt any of the core creative processes. But what it'll allow you to do is run campaigns that were more nuanced or faster that you would have been done, you wouldn't have been able to do before. So, so let's say scenarios where you're responding to something in the news, or maybe it's a minor holiday that you don't normally run a campaign for because it just takes too much time and effort. Well, 
if it makes it easier to take your core assets and tweak them slightly and experiment with generative AI to run a faster campaign, um, you, know, you, you can imagine where, like one of the big use cases is if you have a model and it's, you know, say it's a you know 25 year old Caucasian woman in your ad. Well, if you want to run uh, that same ad for some sort of, you know, special uh, ethnic holiday or a much older demographic, you know, grandparents day or whatever, you know, all these holidays that exist, um, you could just switch out that model now with generative AI, you know, in really easy ways. And the rest of the ad looks the same. Um, and those are things that marketers couldn't do before because to actually stage a photo shoot and have 40 different people of all ages and ethnicities and genders would just be too much work. Um, just need to watch for this the the <laughs> the, the additional digits, the fingers that get added to the images. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, yeah. yeah, you know, and then, and then you want to make sure that they are, you know, they are on brand because if you're if you're going to generate somebody in their, you know, depending on what they're going to be wearing, what they look like, like these brands care about very small things like. You know, does the man have facial hair or not? You know, and if so, is it a mustache or a goatee or a full beard? Like, if you're a rustic outdoor brand, you might care about a full beard. You know, um, if you're a hipster brand, you might care about a mustache. And like, those things that more reflect your your demographic are, are really, really important sometimes to these brands. Well, and the other thing too is that as you talk about, uh, um, as you learn from a marketing campaign, this is something that again, companies that are doing it right, they they are paying attention to and they're doing. They're A/B testing. They're they're with their messaging out there. They're adjusting based on uh, the responses. You can feed that in as well. I, I mean, it's it's something I used to for a number of different companies. Um, so I'd employ college students and and manage their their social profiles, and you know that's something where on the creativity side you don't want um, these. Uh, these junior folks just kind of running amok and pushing these out there I actually ran into some problems where a couple of people got a little too creative and went against brand. And so it's like exactly what you're, you're talking about. So this, this would be something that you could uh, with brand guard actually run through score those before you ever post a tweet that's out there. Uh, yeah. But that's something that even just using AI, again, you can train it to do. It's, it's better than uh, and coming up with ideas and modif modified uh, versions of that initial message that you can test out. It It is revolutionizing the A-B testing. Yeah, social media is a particularly good use case because, you know, your core creative that you're going to use in your main ads for the year if you're a big company, that's developed over many months. You're thinking about long-term trends. Social media, you're responding into the moment. To get any attention, you have to be kind of witty. You have to tie into memes. Those memes may or may not be appropriate. Your wittiness may be over the line or maybe not. So, like, how do you balance that? Particularly if you're, you know, if you're not a super fun and engaging brand, but you're a little more, you know, like if you're an insurance company and you want your brand to be like, we're solid, we're classic, you know, whatever the whatever the terms may be. Um, yeah, it's really hard to strike that line. And I think that's where, you know, a tool like ours can help and, um, you know, understand, you, you know, even if you want to be a little off brand, how far off brand are you is uh, is the kind of thing we can measure. Well, so what are because uh, the other big topic, of course, we talked about AI and a lot of people. I, and I think it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing to be uh, concerned about the ethical use of the of the tools. I, mean, I, I got in an argument with a couple uh, peers over um, uh, as I 
I'm on the board of a content site, um, a, a, a you know for that writes about we've got technology content. We pay for content, so we pay authors to come in, and there are people that are concerned about well, if most of the content or all the content is generated by AI, should we be paying for that content? And my argument was that um, if it was 80% created by AI and yet they go in and they customize, they personalize it, and if it's good content, then yes, we should continue to pay for it. My argument is who cares if 10% of it, 50% of it, 80% of it was generated by AI, if the messaging is, is right, if the content is solid, what's the difference as a consumer? Are we getting value out of that? If the value is there, why should I care? And there are people that are shocked by that. They're like, no, that if if we're paying for content, if 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 we're these people are positioning themselves as experts on this subject matter, then they should write a hundred percent of that content. I don't know if that comes up at all your discussions. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. You know how many how many people how many people take content from other people or use ghostwriters anyway? You know, and some of these some of these kinds of things, um, or take stuff that they've already written that maybe wasn't published somewhere else that they had sitting around. I mean that's that's you know you don't know that either. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. I don't see ultimately if it's if it's good content and you're willing to pay X price for good content. Do you really care? You know where it came from. Well, that's well, that's validation of my of my my thinking too. I mean, the other side of it, you just mentioned it too. That they, they have old content sitting around, or like I for years and years and years, I've been a OneNote guy. Everything I write has been stored within OneNote. If I'm going and writing on a topic and I write on repeat topics, the first place I go and do research is what I've already written that I've already captured in notes in my in my OneNote. So I'm constantly, you know you know, pulling from drawing upon that expertise, years of writing around that content. But this kind of goes to my, my next point is that I argument that I've made for years is that uh, as a marketer, companies are really dismal at reusing the great content that they already have. And so yeah. this is another reason, like it's a, it's a further getting more mileage out of the hard work of, the research of that content that you've already developed. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I I think we have this idea because we look at all the content that we create and we're like, well, we don't want to be too repetitive with our customers or our prospects or, or you know, our newsletter followers. And you forget that, like, they don't read everything that you put out. I mean, I don't know about you, but like I subscribe to newsletters that give me like good tidbits from time to time. And I don't expect that I like everything that they ever say or find every topic interesting. And I, I don't think the the writers expect that either. I think they think as long as they can provide unique insights, you know, on some level of frequency, like I'll stay subscribed and I'll stay chimed in. And um, and so I think we think about that. We think like, oh my gosh, the, you know, our customers are going to see everything that, you know, they're going to they're going to see the same message, you know, too many times. And the truth is they're going to miss 90% of it probably. So best to be repetitive, best to hit them with multiple channels. And, and it's really efficient content creation, even outside of generative AI, to say that like, like let's say we do an interview with an expert on a topic, we make that on a blog post and an ebook, and then sections of the interview that are relevant into short form video content or PowerPoint presentations or further blog posts and tweets and all these things, right? So it's, um, 
yeah, it's definitely something people should be doing. And I, I just think there's this mismatch between we see it all and we assume that our customers are hearing that and, and they're not. Well, I used to always explain it too. It's like you think of Twitter, you know, it's like tweets are fleeting. Like I, I never, rarely do I go to a, a person's, an individual's feed and just scroll backwards and everything else that they've written. I'm usually looking at around a hashtag, around an event or activity, or just in my feed with different sub-communities that I'm a member of, that's how I'm reading that content. So I, I remember early on in Twitter life where somebody commented to me, it's like, it's like, you're always, you're very repetitive in that. And I'm like, yeah, most people see one or two. I'm trying to remember what it was. I remember taking a marketing class like 30 plus years ago. And at the time it said something like, uh, you know, the old style marketing is like, what is it, a, a 10 or 12 touch points before a purchase is made? I mean, I don't know what that is now. It's like 30, 40 touch points because we see so much advertising, so much marketing come across and we miss so many of the different pieces, but it takes more touch points. It requires some repetition there, but that's that's the point. Like I'm, when I had write a new article, I was explaining this to uh, to to somebody that uh, with this content site that I'm a member of, um, where I'll write an article and I will immediately blast it out to all of my social channels, but then I will go in at a different time of day. The following day, I'll do a blast about that same article the next day, and I'll usually try to, you know, I, I work in all time zones, so I'm I. I don't sleep a lot because I'm on late calls with APAC, uh, early mornings with uh, with EMEA. Um, but I will try to stagger my social posts to hit those different time zones. And then I'll do another post on that same new article. I'll schedule it in advance a week later and then a month later. So at a very minimum on a brand new blog post, four posts around that. And so again, that's something where I've started to use the AI tools to even to mix it up so that I can be increase the frequency. If I think I've created a good piece of content or I've written something for a client that I want to, without using the exact same words, create modified versions, variations of that, but that allows me to more frequently repost that to try and maximize, get more eyeballs on that that content. That's how I, I look yeah. at a lot of this stuff. You want to make sure you're consistent, but you want it to be different. You want it to be unique so that you have more touch points. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, brand, I mean, good brands have transcendent brand values and they, they apply to a broad swath of people. I mean, you look at a couple, you know, it's an amazing company, Nike, like Nike for a brand of, you know, shoes and clothes and stuff that's relatively commoditized. I think they connect with everybody, right? It's it's remarkable, but they're very differentiated, right? They're they're about winning, they're about ambition, they're about high performance and all that stuff. Um, but you know, you as a consumer will see, you know, people like you in ads in the channels that they know you'll see them, and it's uh, you know, and, and and slightly tweaked messaging, but it'll all be relevant. It'll all be on brand. It's like really, really remarkable. So do you have other examples? I don't know if you could get into any uh, customer examples, but where you've, you see that they've 
uh, if you maybe have some case studies where they've improved the efficiency, the quality of that content creation, like what are what are some examples of that? Yeah, it's uh, we, we we do have some. Um, actually, we'll probably we'll publish some case studies on the website by the end of the year. We we haven't gotten there yet, um, but um, there's a couple of use cases. So so one is one of our customers owns a whole bunch of different hotel brands, and they have a design team that just works on all the brands together, and they sometimes get a little confused even internally on the style guide and which brands stand for which things and. Um, and so they had a use case already uh, around that. And then they're they're trying to incorporate mid-journey into this to create content faster, you know, leverage it it better and, and cheaper and everything else. And so they um, all their designers, you know, create stuff. They use mid-journey and we have a Chrome plugin. So they use the Chrome plugin and mid-journey to score it really quickly and decide should they should they try another prompt, should they do something else, or is this pretty close for the brand that they're working on? And that helps them switch brand context really easily. Um, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, we have a, a beta customer that we're working with that wants to create 100,000 personalized landing pages. And um, each landing page they want to pull from a couple different generative models, one for the headline, one for the product photography, you know, one for, you can imagine if your product has three to five different maybe value props for why you might use it or want it or, or core features, like being able to highlight the one on the landing page that's most important to that person that you're targeting and also maybe even phrase it in a slightly different way if they're younger or older or man versus a woman or something like that. So um, yes, we're seeing a lot of cool things like that. And then um, while I, I think generative AI is the biggest use case that gets people to look at it, there's a lot of people that are looking at it just to drive brand consistency. You know, there's a, there's a study that came out from Lucid Press a couple of months ago that showed that companies that strive for greater brand consistency actually see decent revenue increases because you're messaging the market the same way you're hitting a better target and all that. And so a lot of marketing firms have made that yeah, a lot of marketing teams have made that a core, you know, goal for, you know, for 2023 or, or, or for next year or something like that is to increase that consistency. So make your brand more powerful. Yeah, I, I could see how I was just thinking, had a conversation a couple of days back with uh, uh, someone who was, we were talking about um, I, I worked for a company that really had a good idea of what their sales funnel looked like. So if they had introduced a new marketing campaign, they knew very quickly how it was performing against their history, against the baseline, you know, down into, you know, from the top of the funnel down to marketing qualified, sales qualified, closed deals. So basically they, they knew that a hundred names in the top always like, they were uh, uh, you know, making five sales and that the average sales price and kind of all those different things. So if they were outperforming in the top or somewhere, they knew where to go make adjustments based on that. And something like this, I mean, it'd be fascinating to see, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I think it works so well is that we were very meticulous about every new piece of content, everything that marketing did, uh, everything that we did as from an evangelism standpoint, we created, we were tagging uh, within the CRM platform. So when the salespeople were going and having conversations with the client, they knew, oh, since the last time I called them, they've attended this webinar, they've downloaded this white paper. So they would change the nature of their discussion based on that unique profile, that customer, where they were in the journey. They wouldn't then go and suggest, like it would even, they would change their script. It's like, this is something where you could actually 
you know, dynamically modify the script, the sales script for the, the salespeople based on the activity of that customer. Um, and so create a more personalized experience, but you know, not to go and have a conversation around this topic and pitch them on downloading this latest white paper when they've already downloaded it, you know, so that it's making suggestions for something else to help try to close that, that sale. Yeah, it's funny. There's a there's a really interesting tool I've seen along those lines called Collectivi that's really good for B2B sales. Um, and what they do is they use AI across network analysis and they take all the customers and all the deals that are flowing through. They plug into your CRM, they see your pipeline and they start to look for patterns in how people buy so that if you're trying to say, you know, because how does the sales process work today? You sit with your reps and you say, what do you think the odds are that this deal is going to close? And they go, oh, we've got our third meeting and a lot of deals close on third meeting. So I think it's 85%. And what Collectivi can tell you is uh, we've seen this customer sold to 500 times. And we know that you're not close to a deal until you've talked to somebody at this level or in this part of the organization or whatever. So actually, you should score this at 20%. You're still far away. And um, and yeah, it's 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 one of these AI tools that can generate really, really valuable insights. <clears throat> and a lot of these insights come from the fact that these AI tools can ingest lots of data. So like, you know, they're not better than a human would be if a human could ingest all that data. It's just as human, you can't, you know, so. Yeah. Um, and so these these tools have the ability to look at everything. And that's like really powerful. But yeah, there's every level of the marketing and sales stack is, you know, getting more predictive, more automated, you know, as there's more and more AI tools to use. So it's uh, it's a really exciting time. Yeah, and we'll we'll see if there's a it'll, it'll be interesting to see how also the customer experience uh, and their their thoughts uh, of whether uh, is this person all just always saying the right things to me? Are they more likely to close or are customers going to get wise to that and, and, and question the fact that, uh, you know, uh, it just it sounds too good and kind of back off like am i being you know what that marketing experience and how people respond to it, it I, I think it, it's just a matter of time before it evolves and changes as well i i i am interested to know i know we've got just a few more minutes here um what advice do you have for companies that are looking to uh expand and start leveraging these kinds of ai tools for their content creation process, other aspects of their business? Are there things that they should be doing, thinking about? Yes, definitely. I mean, the biggest one, you know, the biggest barrier is really your work behavior change. And so I think I think starting to use these tools in very simple ways, you know, forcing people like, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a pitch for a tagline. Uh, I want you to bring five that you've written and five that you got from ChatGPT, right? Just get them used to going there and trying these things as an aid in the process. And then as they start learning to use it, you learn the pros and cons, you learn when to use the tool and when not to use the tool. And I think you have to dip your toe in these water. I, I think too many people feel like either they should just shun all the AI and not worry about it, or they should like massively uproot their business and adopt it. And it's like, no, you should make sure people are spending a little bit of time starting to understand it and see what it can do and take time to work through and figure out over time where it should go. And that comes from experimentation. So I would say experiment, experiment, experiment is what's most important right now. And that's, I know that's hard for some organizations, 
And it's not because you need to be that way as an organization. It's because we're at an interesting point in time where a lot's changing. And when things are changing really fast like this, all you can do is kind of like take samples of it and try to get a feel for where it's going. Because the truth is none of us know what this is going to look like on the other side. We just know it's going to be different. So you've got to be involved in shaping that, I think, if you're if you're a business. I, same advice for uh, students that are looking into uh, you know graduating here the next year or two. Uh, I mean, I, I I do very similar advice. So I I you know mentor people that are uh, you know looking to like get into the Microsoft MVP program, or I've I've spoken at some uh, you know community colleges and universities to like roles and opportunities within tech that are not engineering. As a marketing guy that's been in tech my entire career, I mean, just there's so many opportunities in the space. But, you know, as my advice, you, you kind of just summarized it. I, I say, like, you need to be familiar with what's happening. You need to go out there and experiment and try the different tools. Different companies might be more advanced. They might be leveraging some of it. Um, others are, are, you know, need their help to move into the space. Yeah, well, I mean, you you and I were talking at the beginning of this call about Backupify, right? That was so interesting, that time period when Google Apps came out and companies started moving. I mean, it wasn't that long ago you had an Exchange server in your closet on-premise somewhere. And then Google came out. Microsoft had a tool called BPOS for a while that they killed. They came back out with O365, which was a much better product. And, um, and there were a bunch of parts of the ecosystem that had trouble adapting to cloud. Right. And it's it was hard because the revenue structure was different if you were, you know, MSP or SI or something like that. And so, um, yeah, I think the right thing to do it and the companies that did it well ran small experiments and got used to it and then waited until they understood it before they readapted their full workflows and business models. Yeah. Well, the cultural change, you made this point. I mean, that's always the hardest part. It's, uh, you know, the the like the the whole. I know it became a catchphrase, the digital transformation around it was never about um, uploading the latest version of whatever software, of renewing your software and hardware. Uh, it was about adapting the business processes and the people, the cultural aspects of of change. It's the, always the hardest part. Now, there there have been, I mean, I've I've met with clients that are, you think mom and pop, they're going to be outdated and yet they're high tech, they're taking advantage of that and the other shops that have all the latest tools and yet they're working like an old 1980s IBM, you know, they're just very bureaucratic. So, uh, yeah, you know, culture, you know, like you're going to, you could have the latest, greatest technology and fail if you're not, uh, you know, getting into that cultural change. Yeah, we saw some data in my days at Backupify about, you know, your your investors always want to say, like, what what kind of companies do you sell to? And they want a like geography and a size or an industry, right? We sell to fintech companies that are at least 50 million in revenue and everything else. Well, what we learned is for for a large portion of relatively horizontal IT products, the way you actually think about it is more psychographically, right? It's like, what's your attitude towards IT? There's companies that feel like I want to be on, I think IT is a competitive advantage. I want to be on the bleeding edge, experimenting with stuff and figuring out where we can leverage it in our business. Then there's people that are like, well, we want to do that, but we want to let the other guys go a little bit first, yeah. but we want to be early adopters. And there's all the way down to the, you know, people that want everything to be stable and they want to be laggards. And there's people that are like on the other side that are like, well, IT is just a cost center and we just want to buy the cheapest thing. Right. Yeah. And, and they're 
big Fortune 500 companies and small startups all through all those ranges. You know, it's a it's an attitude more than a, than driven by your size and scale. Yeah, and and again, the cultural aspect. You have uh, I mean, I've, I've worked for companies that have had executives that want to be on that bleeding edge, and yet the culture was not one that supported the ability to try things and fail quickly and learn and and move forward and and so um you know you can you can talk about accepting change and being excited about technology it's another than to uh support that in the in the organization yeah oh so many so many examples of that in big companies yeah. right we, yeah they, they, uh, I know. They, they say what's important and they have no budget for it and you're like how important can it be <laughs> right well rob i really appreciate your time and and uh i know you got to catch a train but uh really appreciate uh, your insights on the topic uh, of course we'll have uh, uh information your content information and on brand guard as well for people who want to find out more be out on the podcast as well as the blog um and uh with that you know safe travels and uh thanks a lot for your time today yeah thanks for having me christian this was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it you've been listening to the collab talk podcast New episodes are published weekly, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.